I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Beth von Vens of MVB Consulting on the show today. Hello, how are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. Really nice to have you here. So you grew up in Boston? Yes. What was that like? Um, it was okay. I grew up outside of Boston. And then I summered every summer on Cape Cod in Truro, which is second to the last town. Oh, okay. So, so a little bit more little sleepy. Bit right, definitely, definitely. And at this point, they, um, Kennedy had taken over and half the town was gone to the National Seashore. So it was really beautiful beaches that were like serene and a few people and it was, it was lovely when did you uh, head to new york in the mid 80s and what was that like at that time what was it new york was like? pretty wild i lived in the east village i mean i knew people who got up in the morning and at 6 a.m dressed to go to work and got mugged on their way to the subway so it was you know it was a a time pre-giuliani in new york city but there was a lot going on in the East Village and around. I'm not sure about the food world and the wine world at that point. What was your thing at that time? What were you up to? I was working as a bartender and I was just sort of hanging out and traveling and doing a bunch of things. And then I started designing clothes with a friend of mine and we made fur hats and all sorts of things and actually had a little bit of a 15 minutes. I was uh, in Bergdorf's. I sold my hat, our hats to Bergdorf's and my hats were in vogue. So I had a company called Alexander Von Benz. My friend's name was Rebecca Alexander and my name Beth Von Benz. So it was kind of cute. And oftentimes we showed up and they thought it was going to be some dapper young man. And there we were, two giggly girls with a lot of hair, makeup and earrings on. So it was fun. So you're bartending, doing some fashion work, and also traveling a lot. Yes, traveling a lot. And basically in the late 80s to early 90s, I spent a lot of time in Europe and in Asia. And I was in Australia, and that's where I met my husband, Scott, in 89. And then he came back and lived here. So so the impetus for the travel was more on the fashion side? Or? No, it was. I had gotten to a point where I had was meeting a lot of European people, and I really thought that... I would be afraid to get into a business and then look back. And I knew a lot of people who really looked back and really regretted they hadn't had a chance to travel. So I had a friend who worked for a courier service and you could fly for almost nothing, but you just took on carry on. And then I got 
I've traveled to Europe a few times and they would call me and say, you want to go to Amsterdam tomorrow? Would you like to go to Rome? Would you, you would had to be a spread. So I really got the travel bug doing this and really loved Europe. And then I worked as a bartender, saved up a bunch of money. And then I went to Europe for like five, six months, came back to the same, went to Asia, traveled all through Southeast Asia and then ran out of money in Bali where I was living, went to Australia, lived in Sydney and then lived in Melbourne. And that's where I met Scott. And he was into wine. He was into wine, and he knew a lot about Australian wines. He was just putting himself through his master's in architecture, in RMIT in Melbourne. So oh, okay. we, but we worked at this crazy bar that was called Pironi's. I made, like, coffees, and I worked illegally, and he worked as a bartender. And he knew everyone, so he showed me all around, and we went to all these great pubs, and there was a burgeoning restaurant scene and lots of new wines, and we were drinking, like, Pike's Riesling and all these fun Australian wines. And, you know, that really kind of gotten me into it more. I'd always enjoyed wines, but it was fun to do the Australian wines with him. And when did you head back to New York? I headed back to Asia. He finished his school and we met in Greece for six weeks. We traveled around Greece together and we really got into Greek wines then there too. But we always, the next morning, we called it Revenge of the Grape because they were pretty rustic back then. <laughs> but that was an interesting connection. And then I headed back in uh, 1989, I believe, 1990. So you decided to stick with restaurants a little bit. Yeah, I stuck with restaurants. And then I worked at a nightclub called MK, which was a people-owned area. We both worked there, and we saved up a bunch of money. And we went to Mexico and Guatemala. We were married by the mayor of Antigua, Guatemala. What was that like? It was wild. It was pretty funny. Everybody had to sign this huge document. Everybody's signatures were about like 12 inches long by 6 inches wide. Like John Hancock-type signatures. It was great. But we lived with a family because we were studying Spanish. And the lesbian aunt of the family was the secretary to the mayor of Antigua. <laughs> and she got us in. <laughs> it was great. So we were married married in Antigua. It was very fun. And what's Scott like? Scott is funny and uh, very intelligent and a uh, hard worker and uh, hmm, a loving man. <laughs> <laughs> So you're doing the nightclub thing. It's like late 80s. Right, right, right. Or well, now we're back into like um, early 90s. I come back. I work at a bar called or um, a nightclub called Tattoo. It's on 51st Street. And a friend of mine, Stephen Knox, who then worked for B&P, did the wine. So we all kind of get into the wines. And there was a great man there who was friends of my husband and I called Carl Andresano. And he had worked previous to that job at Sherry Lehman and was a big collector of wines. And so we really really started looking at wines, drinking a lot of wines, getting together with dinners and things like that. And we all worked a tattoo. And then in 1995, I got a job in a place downtown, which was similar management to tattoo. And it was called Global 33. And it was on Second Avenue between Fifth and Sixth Street. It was, uh, I think the Global 33 was a Twilight Zone episode where the it was called Global Flight 33, and they were flying in the air, and they got hit by a bolt of lightning, an airplane filled with people. And then the airplane went up into the clouds, and when it came back down, the civilization had gone, and as they drove closer, there were dinosaurs. <laughs> so that was named after that crazy episode. And um, it was based, the decor was based on the TWA lounge at, you know, the early 
early 60s at JFK, the Sarandon Lounge. So it was, you know, a groovy place. They served cocktails. They had like tapas, which was like the, the original small bites plates, but I'm, you know, not really sure. And it was a fun place. In fact, the people who owned it owned a building in the Lower East Side and Dewey Dufresne lived in that building. And they hired him as I worked there as a bartender to consult on the upcoming fall revision of the menu. The food menu. And so he worked there, and that's when I first met Dewey. And then Dewey was doing food. Dewey was doing food because he's opening a sandwich shop soon. So he comes from like a food background. He just got into wine here, but he basically was doing food then. And that's when I first met him. And then Wiley, his son, was working for Jean George, and he went out to Vegas. And then he came back in and um, worked there for a little while too. So, you know, all sorts of people passed this place. So as I was working there, they hired me to do the wine wine list, which I believe consisted of like 10 wines. Now, before that time, and especially when I was traveling, a lot of my friends who had been in the restaurant business, bartenders and managers, things like that, all went over to the distribution side. So I had a lot of friends who were now selling wine manager, brand manager, things like that, who were starting to come into the restaurant. Well, the minute they heard I was buying 10 wines, the door is open just for anyone who becomes a wine buyer. And so we, I went to tastings and to lunches and to dinners and I dove into it and they were very supportive of me there and they helped me pay for um, wine classes. So I went to the ASA where Andrea Emmer, now Andrea Emmer Robinson was running it. And I poured at Kevin Zraeli's class, which wasn't at Windows because I think there was like the bombing. So it moved to like the Marriott or something, but it was down in, you know, the World's Trade Center area. The first bombing. Right. But so I took that course and what was I, Kevin Zarelli like? It, he was hilarious. And I had to pour for the panel up front. So that was like the hardest. It was just, But he was so nice. He was gracious, you know, great. It was so fun to take the class. But, you know, it was all like stockbrokers. You know, everybody, maybe it still is, but it was really, you know, exclusively these people. And most of the people who took that class, their company paid for it. You know, they had to go out and smooge and go to the steakhouses and make the big deals. And, you know, it was kind of that. It was almost all men. So it was more of an entertaining thing. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, where I'm sure now it's different. So what's happening then essentially is you're in nightclubs. You meet a lot of people who are opening up a restaurant lounge. And in a way, it's the segue from nightclubs of the 70s being super popular into the 80s and then the rise of the restaurant scene absolutely. In, the, in the 80s, late 80s. And so nightclub promoters are actually opening a lounge that's more like a restaurant. Absolutely. And people are getting serious about food. To the point where they send you to take wine classes. And they hire Dewey Dufresne to modify and upgrade their food menu. And at the same time, there's a lot of corporate entertaining, which is probably helping with that. Right, definitely, definitely. And making it more of a, you know, it's all channeling back into the restaurant business and knowledge and wine. But at that point, you know, it was pretty radical for someone to get a job in a restaurant in the, in the East Village to buy the wines. Usually the manager or someone else did it at that point. So you're at Global 33 and you're a wine buyer. And who are some of your friends in the business that are coming by? Camilo Savios, who's at Omni. He was my charmer salesman, which is now Empire. 
Dan Lerner had just started at um, Michael Skernick and used to bring in like Bonnie Dune wines. We thought it was like so cool and <laughs> so cute that those were like some of the first wines. And I remember I actually put Air Catzatelli, Dr. Dr. Constantin Frank on the list and people were like, no one touched it. But that was like my radical wine. And that was the first time I ever got invited out to like a wine luncheon. It was a Dr. Constantin Frank luncheon at Union Square. And that's when I met Karen King. And I believe she was just bartending also, but doing the wine list too. So, you know, there was there weren't that many of us. You mean like people who are doing wine lists or women doing wine lists? Well, um, buying, doing wine lists, you know, especially downtown. I mean, I know Union Square is bordering on, but in, around downtown, there, there was Gotham Bar and Grill. and It was kind of the era of the manager buying the wine. Yes, I think so. You know, Or the or owner, the manager, chef. the chef, definitely. So what are people drinking in the early 90s? What was, was vodka. You know, vodka ruled. And then a lot of people were sort of drinking still into the Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc. I remember, you know, trying to get people to other things. Of course, Pinot Grigio was king. We did a lot of Sangiovese and, you know, American varietals. You know, that, that there was a lot of American wine. And I bought American wine. And that was one of the first places I went as a, you know, wine buyer or to travel. Even though I had traveled in Europe, I kind of looked, oh, look, there are the vineyards where I drank a lot of wine. But I was poor and I didn't pay that much attention to it i'm sorry to say so america was taken off in terms of wine production and wine sales absolutely and there were some interesting wineries and winemakers out there so uh you know that's what we bought but i bought all sorts of things but american american chardonnays and things like that they were still you know being sought after what was it like on the distribution side? A couple of big companies and a few startups? Or? Absolutely. And there were, you know, older companies that have now gone out of business. But, you know, Skernick was, you know, relatively new and there were a few things. And, you know, I mean, basically, you know, Camilo had to work for <laughs> Charmer Empire and things like that. So uh, today there's like 220, 30 distributors, something like it's that. crazy. Back then there was, what, 10? Mm, maybe, maybe a little bit more if you actually looked at, like, fast forward a little while, but not that far. I went to buy um, wines in a Greek restaurant, and it, there were, like, 10 different Greek distributors, and you had to go to those distributors, and that was a real pain. And that happened with Italians, but at that point in time, they were all under either completely segregated, like the Greek wines, or they sold to a big, big distributor. So a lot of it on the Italian side was Vinifera or Vias because Vias hadn't uh, split off. Split off. Absolutely. Absolutely. Buying the wine at Global 33, and what's your next move? My next move is Anita Katzman, who then was at Southern, and uh, now she's at BNP, was working at the Lobster Club restaurant on the Upper East Side for Ann Rosenswick. And her manager had left, and she had taken her place, and she'd gone to this place on the Upper West Side that was called Ansonia. And it was kind of a drag because we never liked going over 14th Street, and here I had to commute all the way to the Upper West Side from the East Village. But I went up there, and I met this fantastic chef who had just been the sous chef for like five years for Alfred Pertoli at Gotham named... Bill Telepan. And many people don't even know this restaurant existed, but I think, I'm not even sure because it's like a real estate place now, that it was right below like Isabel's where the Museum of Natural History is, like 73rd or 4th Street or something like that on Columbus. 
So that's that's where it was. And it was a great space. And he lived in the Upper West Side and really had faith in it. But basically, the Upper West Side was a wasteland. I mean, this is before West, before any reasonable places that opened up. And there was nothing up there at all. Why the place eventually closed in a very short amount of time, it was just basically people, I think, and somewhat like the Upper East Side, because I just worked in a wine store up here, that people leave and they go downtown to party. And a lot of times, unless you were going to the little fun restaurant in the corner or the Chinese restaurant at that point in the Upper West Side, you went someplace else to go to a nice restaurant, whether it was Midtown or whatever. So, but it was a fantastic place. And he was the first person that really introduced me to like the whole farm to table thing. And I remember one of my first days there, I'd gone into the kitchen and he had flats of um, heirloom tomatoes all over the place. And I had never even seen one. I mean, I didn't live that far from the Union Square farmer's market, which I'm not even sure was there then, but all a lot of the heirloom and the, you know, incredible stuff that came from the local farmers, I had not not seen a lot of that. I was really green. So I got a really great education and he put out fantastic food and he was super passionate and he was glad I was there and we paired the food and wine and, you know, we really created a bond and he, he's a fantastic person and it was a fun place to work. Bobby Cannavale, the actor was a bartender there. Who else came through? People came through this in that in that place. We got some good good reviews, and a lot of wine people came through. But it seemed like people would come like once and then never come back. And I'm not really sure because it wasn't that expensive. I just don't think people were ready in their mindset in the Upper West Side. But Josh Wesson and you know lots of people that were like groovy wine people came over and saw what was happening and a lot of press. And he got some good press. So it's starting to move out where the sous chef of the iconic place opens up his smaller own place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he was backed by these guys who own the Josie's Josephina Citrus Group, um, Louis Lanza and a bunch of people uptown. And they also, with one of their restaurants, Citrus, it was one of now was a big restaurant doors, Danny Abrams from the Mermaid Inn and the Smith and that group. So there were people who really had done kind of entry or mid-level restaurants and they really wanted to to do their high-end restaurant and they were probably friends with Alfred Patoli and he suggested this guy and you know you, you know go fast forward but of course Bill went on to completely survive and be fabulous but it was a you know it was a heartbreaking time because we just you know we thought it was so great it's just it was before its time I think in the Upper West Side. And what were you up to on the wine side? I was buying all sorts of things. I learned like day to day. I mean, this is before people even like had computers at home. Nobody had cell phones. You had to use like a beeper and like call up your wine salesman and things like that. And, um, you know, I went to lots of tastings. I went traveling and I, I bought all sorts of wines, but I much really got into, you know, European wines, wines all over the place. I had really been a fan of Australian wines, so it was a pretty balanced list. I don't think it was more than maybe 250 wines, but we did a lot of wines by the glass. And at Global 33 and this place, I was very into staff tasting, education, you know, tasting, make sure everybody was on the same page, and really trying to bring the education and knowledge of the staff up to a, you know, a level that usually it wasn't at in many places. So kind of like that classic list of the 80s where it's half United States and then and then half Europe and Australia. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Maybe I had gone a little bit more, um, but yes, it was definitely. And, you know, there was a lot of like Puy Fousse, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> 
and at the same time offering a lot of wines by the glass. Definitely, definitely. And we had tasting menus. He did tasting menus. You know, it was pretty radical. I mean, I think he's tried to sort of, you know, mimic um, in some ways the level and the quality of what he really wanted of Gotham Bar and Grill. And that was difficult to do on the Upper West Side. But we tried very hard. And it was a great team. It was a great experience for me. You know, it was my first real job. So then, fast. so not bouncing around so much anymore. Like in terms of your own personal life, Absolutely. you're dedicated to Absolutely. something. Absolutely, like Absolutely. you're into it. Absolutely, you know this is it. This is what I'd like to do. But then one day there's a sheriff's lock on the door, <laughs> and there is no more Ansonia. So I started to work for the other guys in the company, and I opened up this restaurant called Citrus, and that was fun because I did like all American and South the wines of the Americas list, and that was quite fun because I got into wines of. South America and Texas and, you know, New Mexico and things like that. So that was quite fun. I did like this regional list of just the Americas for this um, Mexican restaurant. And who are some of the people that had been influences up to this point on you? Like, who are some of the role models for you or people who you thought, wow, that's interesting to me? Well, definitely would be like the Windows of the World group and a lot of people that had come around. And I had started to get together with a group of people that I kind of met more in my next job, but a lot of the wine people that were out there. I mean, even I took um, classes at Peter Kump's and I took Willie Gluckstern's class on pairing wine with food. Something that, you know, we were there was nothing out there. And I was super lucky because many people live in other areas of the country that they don't have access to, you know, anything. And I was super lucky. So a lot of the people that had taught the classes and some of the Psalms that were around town. And I was very much influenced by my wine salesman with David Newland, who was that point at Winebow, helped me out immensely. And he was my salesman through many, many restaurants. And were there other particular people doing wine lists that you thought, oh, interesting to me? At that point in time, not that I can really remember, as a matter of fact, at that point. But then my next job, because after this closed, is I worked at the same time at Chelsea Wine Vault that had just opened up, I think, and Gotham Wines on the Upper West Side. And then this is where I started to run into, you know, a broad range of people and a lot of interesting people that came into those both places. And Chris Cree, who was an MW, who was one of the original owners from New Jersey at Chelsea Weinfeld. He was my boss. So he was someone who was really hands-on, was there all the time, definitely made an impression on me and helped me out because we did a lot of tasting in the store. And then Uptown was like the exact opposite. They were like bulletproof cash registers. And I spent all my money on like old Bordeaux and like 94 cabs that just come out from California. So I basically spent more than I earned in that place. And I remember taking a credit card out and paying for it. And the girl who was like the cashier was like, you have a credit card? I swear to God. <laughs> you know, it was totally different, you know, night and day. But it was a fantastic cross-section of retail. And Guido was there every day, the owner of Garnett and Gotham stores and Grand and the old man. And I think I had, because I come from restaurants, every day when I came into the place, he said, are you still here, girly? That was what he said to me every single day. And I was like, yes, Guido. But it was a very funny, like, family-run place, Gotham. What was the change for you going to retail? I mean, what did you see people buying? 
oh, I saw people buying like all sorts of things, and especially in Chelsea Wine Vault, because that was sort of radical. It had a much more well-hailed clientele that went in there. They shopped in the market. They lived in the neighborhood. You know, we, ra- we ranged out in a lot of different wines. You know, there was a lot more, um, you know, Italian and French and rosé and, and you know, interesting wines, Gruner Veltliner and things like that, that, you know, were, were around at that point in time. So that was very cutting edge. And um, I, I think they could really get away with Gotham was like classic. You know, they really they 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 watched every penny and people went in there. They shopped and they saw the ad and they went in there to get that, you know, Chateau Gloria for, you know, X amount of price. Or for two like bucks that. less than right, the other absolutely, guy. Absolutely. So they were more brand name focused absolutely, looking absolutely, for price. Definitely. And then downtown they were breaking in Gruner and Rosé. Absolutely. And then we were drinking out of like glasses and tasting with people and doing interesting tastings and, you know, um, and there was a lot of staff education there. It was it was a fun new place, but it was great to see both. You know, you saw all broad, you know, broad range of customers and styles and wines and everything. So what era is that? Was this mid nineties or this was uh nineteen ninety-six. What happens next from retail? Then I was working and David Newland I think came in and I uh the, the Stephanie Tuin, who's a big public relations person, she deals with a lot of wine now. She was a PR person, I believe, at Ansonia, and she had landed the job at this Greek restaurant midtown, along with a general manager from Ansonia called Estiatorio Milos. So they all kind of clambered, you should go down there, you should go down there. But the word around town was that the Greek man who owned it was cray-cray. So I was a little bit scared of going into something like that. So I went down and I had this meeting with him and he was indeed crazy and I didn't want to work there. And they were like, you have to work there. This is such a great opportunity. Meanwhile, I'm making like $9 an hour at the wine store, but I'm not going to Milo's. So I finally gave in and it was like an incredible opportunity. You How know? so? It was amazing clientele. And it already had been open for a year. And I believe Roger Dargorn did the first list. And I don't even know where he worked, but there were a lot of people there. And I think it was Dominique Simone and stuff from Ler Bernardin. So I'm not sure how that connection was. But the owner was one of those people who he had taken a long time to open up the place, like over a year or something like that. And it was fabulous. But he had to get the right marble from the quarry in Greece you know, it was one of those things. And he listened to a lot of people. So somehow people had told him at one point in time that you shouldn't put Greek wines on the list. So he had Roger Dargorn basically commanded him to put like two Greek wines on the list or whatever it was. So a year later, I think Roger just consulted. Somebody said, you really should have someone here. And we want all Greek wines are many Greek wines. So I came in, I was like, this is so great. I'm going to go out and get Greek wines. And then I looked through the beverage media. I asked so all these people and they're like, we don't know. We don't know. And no one knew like where to get Greek wines. And there were all these little companies in Astoria that you had to like go and call somebody, then call somebody back. And it was, it was crazy. It was very hard and you couldn't taste anything. And I didn't know any of the varietals and it was a wild time, but it was a f- incredible restaurant filled with celebrity clientele and people who are really interested in Greek wines. And I built up, it probably had like 350 wines. And at one point I had like 50 quality Greek wines in 1997, w- which is pretty amazing. And I remember cause right around the corner was Molivos and my friend John Pardalis was, and he had like 50 and I think we both had like the same wines, but 
there were a lot of non-indigenous varieties out then, and that's what was kind of available. So unfortunately, I did have some Chardonnays and some Cabernet because you had to. It's almost like if you're an Italian restaurant, you have to have every type of Italian wine, even if you might not want that in a regular restaurant because you have to have the whole thing. And that was what was there. Butari was king. You know, and uh, just some of the new boutique wines. When I was there from Yea Wines, Yanis Pereskvopoulos, he totally just came out with his wine and brought it, and it was in like a Greek label, and that was like 98. And he'd so, worked at Butari, so he kind of came out of Butari. Absolutely, and he came over because Diana Kohilis, who was a fabulous Greek cookbook and um, author and chef, she did this big cheese tasting that was like amazing. And then a lot of people, press came to that, and that was the first time like, Mary, you and Mulligan showed up and a lot of people showed up because they were really interested that they heard there was going to be Greek wines there. And I remember because Mary asked me something and I didn't know where it was. You know, this was like so clear in my mind. I was like horrified that I couldn't answer the question. <laughs> but it was really a radical time and, you know, fantastic to have that vehicle of, of a gorgeous high end restaurant to move Greek wines. So one of the few venues really in the country that you could have done that really absolutely. at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone else is kicking California Cab and Chardonnay, and you're rocking a 50 deep Greek wine list. I mean, absolutely. And at that point, because Roger had started, he had like the top wine salesman in town. So immediately, I'm now uptown now or midtown, being invited out with Michelle from Le Bernardin and you know Paul Greco and Karen King, and like all of these people that around Michael Greenley was at Gotham, and you know there was all of these people, or soon to be, I think he was at the Waldorf. But now I met all some of the big players. And everybody was super interested, like other chefs and the people, they were, they were like, what is that place? Because no one could believe that he was doing this business. With whole grilled fish. Oh my God, and, and how much money it was. I mean, people would have sticker shock like you have never imagined. I will never forget the look on Michael Skernick's face one night when he brought a group of people there and he looked at the check and he just walked out staring at the check. <laughs> he didn't even say goodbye. He was just staring, like mumbling to himself at the check. I mean, you know, it was, it was crazy. And every chef in town and restaurateur, you know, they wanted to know you know, how this was done. But a lot of people forgot that he started out in Milos in Montreal and really had fine-tuned this. But much to his dismay, he was very disappointed on the produce and some of the things that he used to make, you know, some of the simple dishes great to find around New York State. Trying to get he, the product absolutely, absolutely, for the food. Absolutely. You know, he had worked with this artisanal cheese maker or this guy who had like the best, you know, ground wheat and all of these things, you know, he had worked with in Montreal. So he ended up actually getting a fan that drove back and forth all the time with all the ingredients. And he brought in like capers from Santorini and favas, you know, he was really way before his time, you know, it was really truly, uh, you know, m you know, some of the first Mediterranean food that we saw go out and to that level, you know, excellent quality. And we would sometimes for a week, we wouldn't have any meat. And then they'd put on lamb chops and the lamb chops would run out and people would get so mad because at that point it was, it was really, you know, some people were, would go as a group and someone wouldn't eat, eat fish. And they're like, oh, by the way, this is a fish restaurant. But then we wouldn't even have like one meat dish. And I remember Mark Lodigo from BNP, he took... Michelle Couvero and I out to lunch someplace fabulous. It might've been Danielle because he wanted to get together the two top fish restaurants in the city Psalms. And that's how I met Michelle. 
What was that relationship like? It was great. Michelle's a sweetheart. You know, he's a wonderful man. And we talked about a lot of things because I think what people don't realize is how much white wine you go through and your incredible refrigeration problem. Because if you don't have it backed up and you think, oh, I have three backed up and some things are six back up. But if you're going through like two cases or something, I mean, I had to talk the chef into giving up a linen closet in uh, upstairs and making it into like a literal walk-in for white wines in Milos because we sold so much. You know, it's like the exact opposite. Of what would normally be the case. Absolutely. Normally people would be selling a lot of red, but Absolutely. you're cranking through whites because people are getting whole grilled fish. Absolutely. It was, you know, a whole different ball game. And also you had some kind of outdoor seating and there's a lot of light in there. And all of that kind of adds to people wanting to drink white. Yeah, definitely. And at one point in time, I this is when I started to travel a little bit and I went out to Napa. I went out, <laughs> I think it was a Sonoma Couture, like fireside chat where Bryce flew people out and, you know, sat by the fireside and we all went out. And I, I, that's when I first met Jillian Balance who was, I think, then working at Windows of the World, and Aaron Von Rock, who was working at Verbena, and a bunch of people. It was so funny that I had to go to California to meet these people <laughs> that lived in New York. And John Gilman was on the trip, and everyone went home, and John Gilman and I went to this restaurant called The French Laundry. And I, I think it was pre-Paul Rogers, and it had been in Yonville. Roberts, 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 Robert. And um, it was had been in Yonville for a couple years, and we sat out, and that was really changed my life, because that was like the first tasting menu that I had seen at that point in time. And I remember, you know, the first dish was just an oyster. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. It just went on and on. And of course, John <laughs> loves Burgundy <laughs> Riesling, and we had all these wines, and I was like a little bit above my, you know, pay grade. And I remember coming home and my husband say, oh, you picked up the check for four? And I was like, no, that was just my half of two people's dinner <laughs> at the French Laundry. But it was it was a fantastic experience. You know, that really changed my world with the tasting court menus and that whole thing. And that was radical for me, the French Laundry. You were thinking more about pairings. Absolutely. And just about the way the textures, the textures of the pairings. I mean, they were, they were, it was simply amazing. It was a great, great time. So you came back and you ended up working with Bill Telepan again. I did, but I was working at Estutori Milos. I was out at a wine dinner at Colina with Chris Cannon and a bunch of other people. And someone went by from Gotham and I said hello. And he said, oh, you know her? And I said, yes, I just applied for a job there. And he was like, no, you can't go for a job there. And he said, I never poach anyone, but you have to come work with me at Judson Grill. So I came and I saw Bill again and a bunch of people and it was an incredible staff and I left Milos and they were so mad. It was hysterical. And they, they decided that they were going to replace me at Milos with popular wines. That's what, instead of having a Somme, they were just going to order popular wines because I had ordered all these, you know, like Somme geeky wines. That was, so that was the end of Milos for me. And I went and worked at a Judson Crow. What was that like? It was awesome. You know, Bill was great. It was like this cool restaurant. It was an incredible staff, a super supportive staff. We laughed so much. You know, we ate off the menu for lunch and like late night dinner. We drank a lot of wine. We always had samples. And, you know, Chris Cannon was amazing. I mean, he, it was kind of a chance for me because I already already was running my own show. And so to go there when he was still working and running the wine, List was difficult, but it was uh, it was a fantastic opportunity, and he was so smart and 
you know, business-wise, I learned like so much about him. And because he had just come from Remy and Palio, he knew a lot about Italian wines. And if you lined up 10 Psalms in those days and asked, what's your weakness? Nine of them would have said Italian wines and the other one would have worked in an Italian restaurant. So this was when we were talking about before, when Via split off, Vinifera split off, you know, all of those, those places. And so Dino was coming in from Vignoli and Livio Panabianco and Rob Mackin and all of these people. He almost had top heavy in Italian wines, but I loved it. And I learned a great deal and we were able to balance the list together and we had, you know, an awful lot of fun there. It was, it was incredible. And Bill's food was great and we got great reviews and lots of people came and, and we did a whole bunch of great wine dinners and we did the Burgundy Wine Company dinners, which were fantastic. And it was funny because I was listening to James Tidwell, who's an old friend of mine. And when he was in New Jersey, before he moved back to Dallas, he would come in and work the Burgundy Wine Company. He's from New Jersey at like six o'clock in the morning but that's how i know him he's so cute i'm so proud of him and but what was chris like chris was wild and he was the managing partner and uh you know he is like an amazing ambitious man he used to work out every afternoon and then like take a 20 minute power nap at the gym and then come back and you know he was a dynamo you know just a you know dynamic amazing person a great boss to have and uh, very fair and very loyal, but could yell. So could Bill Telepant. So, you know, it was always <laughs> had to run fast. But he, uh, you know, he was extremely knowledgeable. And I was super lucky. You know, he's definitely my mentor. In terms of wine? Yeah, absolutely. And what did you pick up besides the Italian thing? Um, I picked up a lot of things. In the first place, he was very interested in the Greek wines. And going from Milo's, if you had maybe gone to another restaurant, maybe the people who were there wouldn't be so supportive that you were buying a bunch of Greek wines. And at one point, like, I went to Austria, and that was in, like, nine, maybe two year 2000. And, you know, everybody was like, Austria? I mean, I remember having to tell people, Gruner Veltliner. You know, now it's Moscow Filaro. But it was at a time where, you know, that was that was very, very tough sell. And he totally supported me and he loved having the Greek wines. And he had already started set up the wine list where there was like a value page. And sometimes it was a Barolo that was a good value. It wasn't like super inexpensive. But that's where we really showcased a lot of Greek wines, Slovenian wines. I had a huge list of rosés, you know, that I used on the tasting menu. And we did all sorts of things that, you know, a lot of people weren't doing. And at that point in time, everybody in town was saying, oh, Beth knows about the Greek wines. I was getting phone calls daily from people around the country going, help me. You know, Andre Compare was at Ducasse. He called me up, Beth, I want to have some wines on the list. You know, it was great. You know, I was definitely the go-to person to help people out. And everybody was really interested in all the Greek wines. So we, we definitely, and then Milos put Greek wines on the list as far as that list. But going to a, a non-Greek restaurant, and having Greek wines, we got a lot of press and people were very interested and came in there. We poured wines by the glass and, you know, it was pretty radical. It was great. Because Chris's mom is Greek. Yes. Yes, totally. Totally. I once delivered something to her in Athens when I went there once. And 
What was he like as a taster? Like as he a, was a fantastic taster, and he tasted very fast. And when people came in, we were kind of like the good cop, bad cop, because we often tasted together, and we would like torture people and make them cry, and we we beat them down on the price, and we'd like hysterically laugh, and one person would leave, and you know, we just had we just we had a great time. We just yacked it up sometimes at people's expense. <laughs> I think we made Rob Mack and cry once, but uh, but it was fun. It was definitely uh, you know a fantastic. And I came from, uh, I'm very anal Capricorn, all my ducks in a row. And when I came here in Milos, I had made appointments in the afternoon, specific timed appointments. But Chris was like, oh, everybody just come on by two o'clock to four. And so there would be like this mosh pit of people there, you know, all waiting to, you know, have an audience with, a, you know, the good cop, bad cop. It was very fun. How many years were you there? Five. I was there from 99 to 2004. So, you know, that was a long time. And in that time, a lot of people in the wine world started getting together and we were kind of like a small group and we would go to like Lupa every Sunday night and Robert Bohr was the psalm and people went in and out and we all went in a big group and we had a tasting group that was on this thing called the um, frying pan, which is now the old, I think it, it moved the frying pan and, and that moved around to people's apartments. And then my husband, Scott and I, at that point, he was at the plaza and he bought wines for the plaza and everything. But just like Paul at Gramercy Tavern, he was the assistant general manager at Gramercy Tavern, but he was really the wine buyer. And at the plaza, my husband was the assistant general manager of the Oak Room, but he bought wines for the entire place, including the um, room service. So we knew a lot of people through the hotel and restaurant and retail, and we would have these wild wine dinners at our house that would people bring. Like, and you know, I have pictures. There's like thirty bottles by my door and finished, and you know, what Lord knows whatever happened. And we'd cook these like amazing wine dinners, and everyone would pile over, and we could get like ten people around this one table. Becky Wasserman, all the Greek people, you know, everybody who came to town, you know, they all came to my house, and that was very fun especially to do in like a New York small apartment. So there was a community by absolutely, this point. Absolutely. Of, of people who were into it, sommeliers, buyers. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and those, all of those people, um, you know, were just coming up. Some of them were, you know, still a bartender. Some of them were a manager, you know. Some of them it was, uh, you know, a lot of people that were, Lawrence Kretschmer was a manager, but he bought the wines at Mesa Grill and things like that, so. And that was another thing. We were part of the Kretschmer group. And, we, you know, Judson Grill was kind of like the redheaded stepchild. Gotham was fabulous. Bobby Flay was on TV. Bolo got three stars, you know. And we were always struggling. And then one day, Judson Grill closed. And it was kind of the same thing. On a Tuesday, we were told it was going to close on a Saturday. That must have been hard. It was. It was difficult. But it was kind of fading. And at one point during that summer, I had talked to Robert Bohr, and he was out in the Hamptons and working at Nick and Tony's. And I said, you know, if you ever need anybody. And then he was like, no, 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 that's fine. And then he called me up the next week. I'm going to a party. Can you work? And so I started to get into psalming and working out at Nick and Tony's. So I just went right to there and worked out there that summer. And that was another fantastic experience because you had a lot of big collectors. You had lots of people come in and bring their own wine, but it was a lot of great tastings and, you know, a different clientele similar to a Milos clientele. I remember at Milos, it was very European that many people at that point in time 
would look at me and be like, can you send the psalm over? Sure. Because they thought I was a woman. But when I went to Judson Grill, it was all about like cake bread. And I was like, what? But I never had any of that. You know, a lot of the real standard wines. But the equitable building that Judson Grill was in, which is now Bar American, was like filled with lawyers (laughs) and businessmen. And, you know, they came down and they wanted, you know, it was a different cuisine also. But basically, it was kind of a shocker when I went there because it was much more conservative and sort of less sophisticated in an American way than Milos was. But in many ways, it sounds like every time the wine and the restaurant have really been defined by the neighborhood and the clientele of that neighborhood. Absolutely. Like every time that you're talking about, you know. Absolutely. It's like this is what was going on and this is what was possible in the East Village, the Upper West, Midtown West. Right. Right. And I think Chris broke a lot of barriers because he just liked Italian food and he had a lot of people who came in there. He stood at the door most of the time. You know, he was the face and he knew like loads of people. And there was amazing cross section of business publishing. Forbes magazine was right around the corner. You know, there was a lot of things happening there and he was well connected. So people trusted him. And that was the kind of thing at the at Estatura Milos, too. You need to be trusted to be able to, like, sell those Greek wines. I mean, Dan Rather and, you know, people would come in, Tom Hanks and all these people. They would all come in, you know, and try Greek wines, you know, because they trusted me and knew me. So you're out in the Hamptons, and what's the Hamptons like? It's, you know, completely crazy. You know, it's ostentatious and insane. And, you know, I'm just going in there every night. And waiting on like amazing celebrities and all of these people, but everybody who loved the wine list, Robert Bloor put together the wine list and he'd talk about custom making it, except a little over on Burgundy. (laughs) I don't think there was like the California wine section had like four wines on it, but you know, people got used to it and he really, uh, he he knew what people like because he had been doing it for years. So, so Burgundy was starting to become a thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he was making sure, you know, he was telling people a lot of the guys who were collectors were like Tuscany, California. You know, that was a big thing then, and still is in many people, you know, and so that's that he really, you know, pushed the Burgundy. A lot of the people brought in their own wine. It was mainly Bordeaux, things like that. But now if you went out there, I'm sure a lot of the people brought in their own wine is Burgundy. And that's probably like 100 percent because of Robert Bohr. You know, I think he really did, you know, totally push that. And you worked out there a few seasons. I worked out there. Um, I went back and forth for a while. But basically, then I came back in and I had a friend who worked at the Sea Grill for an Ed Brown. And Rockefeller Center. And Rockefeller Center. And he said, listen, can you please just work there from Thanksgiving to Christmas? Because, you know, they do like 2,000 people a day. So that was an interesting situation because I didn't do the wine list, but I helped buy some. And I really saw, I worked with Union and I worked with Ed Brown, who was great. And I got involved sort of in known in the RA group. Restaurant Associates. Absolutely, Restaurant Associates. And they were, that was like, you know, one of their flagship. A lot of celebrities came in there. You know, you sold lots of wealthy tourists and, you know, you sold a lot of wine. So so I saw kind of like that other element of Midtown. And I started to work there for a while. And then I went away to Sherry with Steve Olson with a crazy group. Michael Greenlee, who was working at Gotham. Debbie Zakarian, who I think was at some restaurant. She didn't have a wine store from San Francisco. Paul Greco, Scott, myself, and a bunch of people went to Sherry for a while. And then Scott and I went to the rest of, you know, part of Spain. We drove from Madrid to Galicia and back and stopped all in between. 
So that was like a fantastic trip. But before I left, the RA, Restaurant Associates, did tennis, the U.S. tennis program. And the people who had done it with them the year before were pressuring the tennis people that they had to br you know, bring up their grade of wine person, wine list. So they hired me before I left. In fact, I was like, oh, I'm leaving tomorrow. Here's my contract. And I had a friend write me up a contract. So they, they were forced to sign the contract before I left because they had to tell the people. So I got like an excellent job for the next two years working, you know, part-time and then doing the U S tennis open, which was unbelievable wine sales. And like people were super interested in, you know, huge, huge high-end burgundies, you know, white burgundies, like left and right sold at the aces at the tennis. We're just cranking through. Unbelievable. It was just, I was shocking. The shock. First year, it took me a while, and you realize it's only fourteen days, and so you you work like half the year up to these fourteen solid days, and you never know what's going to happen. And plus, even just getting the wine through the security into the you know the staging area, and then setting it up to the five or six restaurants and all the kiosks is it's quite was quite an interesting job. I mean, how many kiosks are we talking about? Well, at that the first year, there were less, but there were a lot. But they only had like you know. X amount of wines, much less amount of wines. But at the, um, the, you know, we made up wine lists and everything at Aces and the Steakhouse. I mean, they, they were like huge wine lists that we bought. And in a way, it was a big pop up. Oh, in a way. Absolutely. It was a once a year at an, an exactly flanking Labor Day big pop up. And what did you do after that? One of the managers, when Judson Grill closed, had gone over and worked at David Emile and a place that now is just a party space called Guastavino's over on the east side by the bridge. Under the bridge, sure. Absolutely. It's a fantastic space. And Michael Monaco was doing a consulting job there. And I went, and they would call me up, and they're like, your desk is ready? And I'm like, no, I don't want to work there. And they're like, come on, your desk is ready. So I went to work there. And then I went with Michael Lamonico and a good part of that team over to Open Porterhouse, New York, and um, the Time Warner building across from Per Se. Michael Lamonico did both. He, he did Gustavino's and then he opened up a Porterhouse. Yes, but he was just the consultant at Gustavino's and he was like, he was so great and funny. He was so carefree because he was just the consultant. You know, he didn't have all the headaches because that was the Emil, you know, David Emil and that whole group. And so he, uh, you know, he went um, and just was, we had such a fun time. And, but I basically worked for Sir Terence Cameron. Oh, okay. What was that like? Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, he, he, it was very, very corporate and it all came from England and, you know, it was completely different than the way that we would ever do things here. And, and then teams of people would come over and check on us and it was pretty, it was very, very interesting. So then I went to Porterhouse and I put together a steakhouse list and I remember thinking mm, steakhouse, I'm not really that interested in steakhouses, but I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this right. And I w had time before the place opened. So I went out and tried a lot of wines at different steakhouses around town. And I just kind of looked around and I saw a lot of men there and they looked at the wine list for a minute and they maybe didn't even look at the menu because that place was famous for its porterhouse or a sirloin or whatever. And I said, you know, this is something that you have to be able to navigate the wine list as quickly as possible and find what you want. So I, 
I decided that it was spa for men, and I was going to spa. Def- it was spa, like a spa, a spa for, men. for men. That's a, that's what a steakhouse is. You want to make them cater. feel comfortable absolutely, and absolutely, luxurious. Absolutely. And I put together this wine list that had tabs, and it was in alphabetical order, and the way the whole thing was set up, and a table, a quick table of contents, and it really, you know, made sense. And we sold, you know, a ridiculous amount of wine, and it was great because I kind of started small, and then in two years, you know, I built it up. It was like a complete custom made list. And in some ways, I think that I was sort of, people would look at that list and go, what happened? Because I was the, the Gurner Valleyner starter, the Greek wines, the Slovenian person, you know, I was like the radical pioneer. And then, you know, I basically did a quality steakhouse list that was, you know, hugely successful. Big reds. Big reds, you know, we sold a lot of different things. I sold, I poured a Greek, a Sertigo Sauvignon Blanc by the glass, you know, I still, you know, went around that and we did very heavy tastings with the staff and did a lot of, you know, fun things and people came in and, you know, I had two Psalms under me and I was on the floor. So, you know, sometimes we'd have three Psalms, which at that point in time, also 10 years ago, that you didn't see a lot of that either because it was a big room and, you know, there were people who really needed attention. We found that out soon enough. But so. a lot of it was just making it easy for the guests to order the wine. Absolutely. Because they didn't want the headache. They Absolutely. just wanted to spend big money and be done with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people who lived in the, you know, the buildings above came down, you know, so we had like local, super high end, fantastic clientele, you know, people that were great. A lot of regulars, you know, a lot of repeat customers, a lot of celebrities. And uh, Bloomberg came in a lot with the mayor of uh, Seattle, and they drank Washington State wines. You know, it was fun. It was great. Because Michael Lamonaco had worked at Windows. And, Absolutely. And a lot of people, I think, also felt a lot of sympathy for him. Absolutely. Having Windows. Absolutely. He was kind of like a New York hero in a way. Absolutely. Like a New York he was. guy. He was. You know, he was just kind of associated with New York because of that event. I and I think that's like a perfect person, business-wise, to put in your right, you know. So I don't, I'm not sure if it was actually planned that way, but it was, a, you know, it was a great, great experience. But nonetheless, it was a pretty tough times review. It was a terrible times review. It was so horrible because we had worked so hard. And it was Frank Bruni who did the review. And he even split the page with some new steakhouse, STK Steakhouse, in the uh, meatpacking district. And he slashed and burned. But fortunately, at least we only had a half a page. And then at the end, he wrote a lovely little clip on me that's saying that I was charming and that he had tried this um, Lagrine from Whitcraft. It was actually a Whitcraft Lagrine, like single vintage Lagrine from Whitcraft. And I had described it as purpley. And he said, that's just right. But, he, you know, he wrote this thing. So I had to kind of like sulk into work the next day because I felt guilty that, you know, in the big picture, it was great. There was something positive, but it was hilarious that, you know, I, I was the only person who got any write up. And then ever since that, after that, Frank Bruni used to call me and, you know, ask me questions for his blog or some articles that he was written. And he always looked because it, you know, it was the blocked number. You're like, oh, Frank's calling, you know. So you became kind of a off the cuff advisor background. So one of, one, you know, one of the many. And I, you know, that was like that in a lot of press. You know, at that point, the wine spectator was doing those full page psalm talks. And I think I was like the second person to do that. And that came out in Porterhouse. And so, you know, even through Judson, I had gotten a lot of press and, um, you know, for different magazines and things like that. And, um, you know, especially Porterhouse got a lot of press, too. But in Frank Bruni, I did. And one time he did, he called me up 
Ari sent me this blog and it was about this man who had called in and, you know, he loved to stir the shit. You know, this was definitely like, I'm going to get a lot of comments from this blog. And this man wrote in and he said that he had gone to dinner with a friend and it was sort of unclear. I think if you read it, how many people, but I would have said it was four people. They went into a restaurant. The wine list was handed to his friend. His friend ordered the wine. The wine was delicious. The bill came at the end and the friend had ordered a $2,000 bottle of Screaming Eagle. And this man paid the bill, but of course was seething enough to write a, a letter to Frank Bruni saying that he thought that it should be the restaurant's responsibility to call in or to tell somehow warn the person that this was an expensive wine, even though the other uh, friend ordered it and seemed to know what he was ordering. But so this created, oh, my, you couldn't believe the comments and how many wine people wrote in from all over the world and they didn't have their names, but you could tell it was like Dan Perlman from Argentina. You know what I mean? Like you could just tell like so many people were like, this is crazy because people wrote in a lot of restaurant people were like, that's complete bullshit <laughs> that someone's going to be able to, you know, be condescending enough to say, do you realize this wine is $2,000? And then other people were like, yeah, that, you know, it was really, it was. It was a crazy, crazy. So I wrote and I tried to be really diplomatic. And Michael Monaco was so intense about that. And I had been through a, a couple of re interviews and Fred Dextimer was around at that point. And, you know, he was like the bad boy Wild West. And he would just say anything, you know, when he was at BLT. And I was always the person who was like, well, you know, you have to be really careful. But Michael Monaco really taught me, you know, you, you do. You have to be very careful of the press. So um, I just said, you know, sometimes if you look at the wine and then you can move your finger slowly over to the price and say, would you like this wine? You know, we went back and forth, but it was very fun to kind of be at, uh, be connected with Frank Bruni, who was a hoot, even though he wrote a horrible review. And you were on the Times Tasting panels a lot. A lot, definitely, definitely. And I did a lot of the Greek panels, and I helped them because it was very difficult. And in retail, it had kind of Greek wines had gone out to restaurants, but in retail, it was it was ridiculous. There was like nothing, or it was like 10-year-old um, Acertigo or something like that. You know, it was really tough to find in retail. So that's what the Times Wine Panel would do. And so, you know, I kind of helped out in that. But I sat on the wine panel, usually with my husband. We sat on a team. So you were kind of a go-to when those kind of topics that you knew a lot about, but maybe other people Absolutely. didn't, they Absolutely. would give you a ring. Absolutely. And I just sat on a wine panel, a Greek wine panel out in Pebble Beach last week. And I won't mention anybody's name, but someone sat on the panel with me who has, you know very well respected and he told someone it's a good thing Beth's on that panel because I haven't studied Greek wine since I passed my exam you know it's hysterical but it was very very funny that you know I did definitely have an edge and you were a Greek wine buyer at Zaki's for a while I was the American wine buyer I oh, had like so a million dollar budget what was that like it was crazy but it was I started there I left Porterhouse and then I started right back to back and I wanted to take a holiday and Ned Benedict who had been my friend the whole time was working up there and I gave my notice a month's notice and he called me up and said they want to see you and I said I don't want to go up there <laughs> but I did and by the time I got up there they were like well here's your desk and this is what you'll be doing and I was like did I miss the first two interviews I mean it was hysterical so I started I went away 
um, on holiday and came back, I started working at Zaki's and I was, you know, in charge of all the American wines. And I started to buy the Greek wines because there were actually people coming in and asking for them. So that was cool. So I would do like American and Greek wine seminars with the staff and things. It was hysterical. And that was fun because we did a lot of different things. And the man that I worked for, Andrew McMurray, was like the best boss I ever had. I mean, he was crazy 90 miles an hour oh you can do this oh you can do oh that sounds great you know he was so supportive he thought every you know effort that you made was great and and then there was ned kind of squirreled in the back with the it people muttering to himself and his you know antisocial. and when i first got there everyone was like that guy's your friend hysterical but you know i worked there and it was interesting but unfortunately it was 2008 and that was not a great year and you know the whole place crashed down I ended up, uh, you know, not, I actually quit right before it because I was too stupid to realize, that, but that was all right, you know, but I actually made the first cut because they laid off a lot of people, but that was, that was tough times in Scarsdale. And it was a point where people didn't want to be shown, you know, spending any type of money, you know, you were like outed and, uh, you know, that was, that was very tough times, but Zachy's was, was a great job. It was very, very cool. And you started doing some Greek wine promotion. Yeah, and I started consulting that I always had had my company, and that's what I did from starting from Tannis and RA, and I'd always kept it and done little things. So I started working for VOS and some Greek wine producers, and I was kind of like the ambassador and went around. And, you know, a lot of people were already looking to me so many times, asking me, calling me from all over the country. It made perfect sense that I work for these people. So I did things here and did put together some really great outside-the-box lunches and dinners with people that didn't have anything to do with Greek cuisine. And we, we took, like, a small set of psalms. We went to Morea for lunch, and we did a barbecue at Roberta's in Brooklyn. And, you know, we just we did all all these super fun things that especially in the summertime was like a great time to, you know, drink Greek wines and be excited about them and see how food worthy they are and low alcohol and, you know, not unoaked and, you know, they, they have a lot of potential. And so I worked for them for a while and uh, then the Greek economy crashed. So, <laughs> so it seems like my jobs evolve around the economies of certain countries. But it's a 25-year run with wine, basically, early 90s to mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. Boom and bust periods in terms of economy or neighborhood Absolutely. or restaurant. But Absolutely. it seems like it's been pretty fun times Absolutely. most and of I've, the time. I've seen a lot of great things, met a lot of great people, tasted a lot of great wine. And I think sometimes I went on a trip to Bordeaux in December with a bunch of people who are in their 20s, and it just seems like they're, they're all pre-master's um, candidates, and it was there was no fun. <laughs> it seems like I felt really lucky that I, you know, really went to great places, experienced stuff, had a great time, enjoyed myself, and still am, you know, tasting, you know, and enjoying wine. The world's been wide open. Absolutely. Absolutely. So looking back, what have been some of the kind of most stark changes that you've seen in the city in terms of wine? Depends, but I think the the restaurants was the facility for people to expand their knowledge and possibly become the wine buyer outside the manager and the owner and bring people up through like Union Square did in many of those places where lots of people start from a busboy and then they become, you know, one of the part owners or something like that. So I think that that evolution is to be warranted.
if someone were to come up to you today, a younger person, and say, yeah, I'm thinking about maybe getting into the wine side, what would you tell them? I, I mean, would tell them definitely. I would definitely tell them. And as far as consulting, I think that consulting is great, but you need to build up your momentum. Don't leave your job. Stay with your job and try to do other things. And there's a lot of people very successfully doing that. And that's something to keep in mind. Sometimes you need to be based in where you are to then go out and do something else. So I give advice to people is just try to stay where you are or have some kind of a base before you just cut it all off and then go out because sometimes you can like lose track of what's going on. You need the public profile. Absolutely. You I need think to, so now. And people need to know where they can come find you on a Tuesday to have a glass of wine. Right. I think that that's very important. Or you need to be out there, whether it's in the press or doing something, um, podcasts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what has surprised you in your own career? What's been, uh, I didn't see that coming. Um... But, you know, some crazy stuff like Greek wines or rosé. Rosé is a really big surprise because I tried to rosé. You know, rosé is such a huge thing. And I remember there was such a short window of time and people were like, oh, this, you know, when I was in Judson Grill, people were sure it was white Zinfandel. But I just think the rosé craze is, you know, one of the things that's really surprised me. Um, another thing is I think that I, th I think, which is great is uh, there is an opportunity when you're in the wine world to do a lot of different things where it used to be like a small, narrow Avenue for me that you came, you were the wine person then you did this and that. And, you know, it's like Roger Dargorn, you know, is still on the floor and, you know, that's what he likes to do. But there's a lot of young people now are going, Oh, I could do this or, Oh, I could do that. And so I think that that is a great thing too, to, Take a look at, you know, what's out there and try to create or mold your own future that what's, you couldn't do when, in my days. What's next for you? I have a few things. Some things Hampton related. Some things might be from a region in France and the others might be a region in Greece. But I have a few gigs coming up and possible things that should be really exciting. Beth Von Benz of MVB Consulting. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Beth Von Benz. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.